Thank you, Kent and Barbara, for our music tonight. Welcome to our evening service. We're glad that you are with us. I'm going to ask you to find the book of Ecclesiastes in your Old Testament. If you find Psalms, go to your right and you'll find Proverbs. And if you find Proverbs, go to your right again and you'll find Ecclesiastes. I'm going to do a, mess, a, a series of messages on Ecclesiastes on these Sunday nights beginning tonight. You'll notice uh, on your bulletin or on the screen if you're looking at the outline that this is an introduction to the book. So we'll talk some about introductory material, which is interesting in this book. And then uh, we'll look at the first three verses. So uh, this is an introduction, these first three verses. Let me read them to you. Ecclesiastes and chapter 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? We'll see that kind of language all throughout this book. I thought how I could describe what this book is about, and here's what I thought about. Some years ago, I was in England with my sister. We were doing church history study and going to different places. In a town called Northampton, which is north of, of London, uh, I was driving. I rented a car over there, and we were driving. And they are the original turnabouts people. I mean, they have turnabouts over there wherever you go. And so as you come into Northampton, there's this huge turnabout, a big long circle, and it has, as a matter of fact, I, I could find it on a map today, and I found it on a map. Uh, and I thought it was at least as many six different roads coming into this, this turnabout. And two of those are limited access roads, and they come into this turnabout. So I'm driving this car, and remember that over there I'm driving on the other side of the road. So I'm sitting on the, on the right side of the front seat, not the left side, going the other way against the traffic, and these roundabouts have have like four or five lanes and you have and depending on which of those six exits you want to take you got to be in the right lane I think I went around that thing about 11 or 12 times before I figured out which arrow I was supposed to take you know and uh, the, and the whole thing uh, is you know where do you get off of this thing and how do you get off of it well when I was reading all the introductory material about the book of Ecclesiastes, I thought of that time in my life where life is just a roundabout, it seems. Is that what the book is going to say? And, and how do you get off this roundabout? What does it all mean? Where am I supposed to be? What lane am I supposed to be in? And that's kind of what uh, this book is going to, to talk about. In, in the world we live, folks, we deal with truth and we wonder to ourselves, what, what is truth, right? Uh, is there any absolute truth? People are wondering if there's really any, a, even a God. Did God really create this world? Is he, is he in control of all of this madness that we see in our world today? Uh, there, there is a, a uh, moral revolution, as they call it today. I would call it an immoral revolution, but where is morality? Where is that type of, of of uh, morality that the Bible speaks about. 
Where is law and where is punishment for breaking the law? Uh, we wonder that. And the sanctity of life, the sanctity of marriage, the sanctity of gender even, and those kinds of things. We, we look at that and we feel like we're on a roundabout in life wondering where uh, is the right direction to go, right? Well, this book is going to talk about that some. I've, re I've read a number of good men. I've kind of collected some good books. Uh, David Jeremiah did, uh, reported a survey that was done some 10 years ago now. It was interesting. Johns Hopkins University did a survey of 8,000 students of various different questions, but one of the questions was, what do you think is the most important thing in your life? And over 75% uh, of those 8,000 students said, the most important thing for me is to find the purpose and meaning of life. That's why Walter Kaiser in his book said, uh, you find that, that among college students, the book of Ecclesiastes is their favorite book. You know why? Because it seems to say on the one hand, there's no purpose to life. If you don't want any purpose, you can find some verses in this book that seem to say that. Or if you see it from God's point of view, of course, you see God has a way through this life and all. We talked about over the past, you know, in our lifetime actually, but over the past 20 to 30 years about modernism and postmodernism and those kinds of things. Let me give you this old illustration that's been around for a long time. You know, modernism was something that happened for 200 years. As a matter of fact, they will specifically put it from 1789 to 1989, from the beginning of the French Revolution and French skepticism to the fall of the Soviet Union in 1987 or 89. So modernism is a 200-year period. Before that, pre-modernism is described in this illustration as a box with the top, with the lid of the box open. In other words, for a thousand years, we believed that there was a God. And society was controlled by the ability to look up out of that box and recognize God and see that he's in control. And there was a lot of conflict over theologies and the, and the rest, sure. But uh, even the Reformation came along in those days, and so they looked up to God. And then this illustration says, in the 200 years that we call modernism, they closed the box. And you were not allowed to look outside this world, outside the box. And so uh, everything that is true and everything that is real, you get from this world, there's nothing outside the world. That's modernism. That was, there is no God, there is no word of God, and so forth. And then they say, if you want to describe postmodernism after that time, really from about the 1900s on, and I might say the 19, uh, 1990, I mean, but 1960s is where I think it started, they say the bottom of the, of the box dropped out, and there's no foundation to life. There's no truth, there's no real, there's no morality, and the, and the rest. And I think, I think that is a great description of what has happened even in our lifetime. And so we live in that age where it seems like the bottom of the box has dropped out. Uh, no one knows uh, where the foundation is uh, anymore. And you know, the interesting thing is that Ecclesiastes is 3,000 years old. It means the writer of this book, and I'm going to say Solomon a little bit, but the writer of this book uh, dealt with the same problems that we deal with. 
the same kind of world that we deal with. There's nothing new under the sun, he's going to say uh, a number of times. And if there's a theme to this book, it would be this. Life is meaningless without God. If you don't have God in your life and as the direction of your life, if you don't have a box that's open to the top, then life will be meaningless to you. Warren Rearsby did two things in, the, in his introduction. He said, number one, the front door to the book is what we read in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Uh, what profit is there to man for his labor under the sun? But he said there's a back door to the book. If you want to turn to the very last chapter, I'm going to refer to it a number of times tonight, there's a back door. In other words, the final door to the book is the last two verses of the book. When he gets all done with everything, he's going to say, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Let me repeat that. Fear God, keep his commandments. Why? For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. And so I thought, interesting, front door and the back door. In this book, we're going to talk about wisdom, about pleasures in life, about wealth, about labor, oppression, the seasons of life, popularity, difficulties, contentment, and all of those kinds of things. Uh, and we are going to learn that if you want to be happy in this life, you need to fear God and keep his commandments. Now, I have three thoughts simply from these first three verses, but still in kind of an introductory way, I want to I tell you something about this book. One of the most debated things about this book is who wrote it, believe it or not. Now, traditionally, uh, Solomon was seen as the author, and I'll tell you up front, I think he is the author, so I think tradition is right. But, you know, that period of modernism I was talking about, we went through that period where they questioned everything about the Bible and uh, when the books were written and who wrote them and all of that kind of thing. And so we've come through this time where a lot of the scholarship, whether it's German rationalism, French skepticism, English deism, or American liberalism, all of those kinds of things, had other opinions. Some people... Uh, uh, proposed that Hezekiah wrote this book and his school of prophets, which would have been a, number, a few hundred years after Solomon. Uh, some even believe that it was during the, the time of the Maccabees between the Old and New Testament. And interestingly, one of the most popular views was that some poet wrote this book and pretended that he was Solomon. And there were Christian men who believed that who pretended that he was Solomon. One of the problems is this. We know that Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs, and three times in the book of Proverbs we have Solomon's name on it. We know that he wrote the Song of Solomon, and seven times in that book his name is mentioned. But his name is never mentioned in this book. We have descriptions about him, but his name is never mentioned. But notice chapter 1 and verse 1, which we read. The words of, okay, the preacher, Koheleth, it's called, or Koheleth, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Well, who do you think that might be? 
Either that is Solomon or someone is not being truthful with us, right? Is God's word truthful? We have to take it as it is. And then look at verse 12. I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. And verse 16, I communed with my heart saying, look, I have attained greatness and have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart was understood, uh, has understood great wisdom and knowledge. Who is that other than Solomon, right? So the traditional view holds that Solomon wrote this book all the way back to men like John Gill and Matthew Henry in the, in the 1600s, up to newer writers today, which men that I like, David Jeremiah, Warren Wiersbe, Walter Kaiser, and men that we know today, of course, hold to this. One man, C.D. Ginsburg, in 1970 said this, the Solomonic authorship is fully corroborated by the unequivocal allusions made throughout this book to particular circumstances connected with the life of that great monarch. And so, like I read in verse 16, that's interesting, isn't it? That he says in verse 16, I had more wisdom than anybody in Jerusalem. Do you remember when God gave Solomon wisdom? Remember back in 1 Kings, and it's in 1 Kings 3.12, where God says this to, to Solomon, Behold, I have done according to your words, I have given you a wise and understanding heart so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall any be like you afterwards. And so that matches ver verses like verse 16, and we'll find that all through, all through this book. So I ask, first of all, who is the preacher? The word preacher in that language, koheleth or koheleth, I like to say it that way, is the Hebrew word. And it means the speaker of the assembly. You and I have it from a Greek word. So when we say Ecclesiastes, we're saying the word for church. Remember the Greek word for church? What is it? Ekklesia. So you see in that title the, the word for church, ekklesia. Well, when you add the T-A or T-E-S, T-A, taste at the end of, of a word, it means the, the speaker of it. So you have John the Baptist, the, the baptismos is baptism, but the baptistes is the baptizer. He's the doer of that work. I'm a baptizer. I did it this afternoon after our church. Uh, I performed the act. So if you have the ecclesia, which is the church, and you have the ecclesiastes, that's the speaker of the ecclesia. That's the one doing the talking. And that's, uh, in this case, translated preacher. He's the preacher. So when you see the word preacher, you're also saying Ecclesiastes or Ecclesiastes. So that being said, and the fact that it seems that uh, Solomon is the obvious writer of this book, I want to take you back to something in Solomon's life. If you'll go with me back to your left to 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11. Here we have the saddest words in the Old Testament, if you ask me. Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, he says in, in the book of Proverbs. He writes the song of Solomon. 
Uh, but look at what happened late in Solomon's life, 1 Kings chapter 11, as he comes toward the end of his life. But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonites, and Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you, for they, uh, surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. And Solomon clung to these in love. Isn't that sad? This is a sad note at the end of his life, isn't it? But let's read on a little bit farther. <laughs> there was a lot of hairspray in his, in his house. He had 700 wives, princes, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. Well, yeah, a thousand, and they're Gentiles, and they're pagans, don't know the Lord, don't know the Jewish religion at all. So verse 4 says, It was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. It mentions even Baal Ashtoreth worship in verse 5, Milcom also, and uh, how he worshiped in the high places in verse 7, and even the God of Molech in verse 7. And verse 8 says, He did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Kind of a sad thing, isn't it? Well, right away we find in this chapter that God was not pleased with this. So in verse 13, however, I will t uh, not tear, or excuse me, um, let me go back up to ver verse 12. Nevertheless, uh, I'm sorry, verse 11, <laughs> verse 11, if you will. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. That would be Rehoboam. However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give you one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen." So God was angry with, with him in his older days. He gave him adversaries. And so in verse 14, he raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. And then in verse 23, he raised up another adversary against him, Rezan the son of Elida, who had fled from his Lord. So God was going to punish him. And if you will, all the way over to verse 41 of this same chapter, now the rest of the Acts of Solomon, all that he did, and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? It would be nice if we had the book of the Acts of Solomon. And actually, over the history of putting the Bible together in the books of the Bible, some have tried to propose that that may be the book of Ecclesiastes, that in the end of his life that he wrote a book. However, it's never been proven, and you can't say that with any certainty, but uh, his, his acts were written in a book. And uh, we have it, at least, in the book of Ecclesiastes. 
We have the end of, of his life. Now, what happened at the end of his life? Well, we're going to see some of that in the, in the book of Ecclesiastes as he comes at this terrible time in his life when he has basically failed the Lord of being the wisest man in the world at that time. There's, a, there's also an interesting verse. You don't have to turn to it, but you might want to mark it. In 2 Chronicles 33, the end of a li the life of a man named Manasseh. Manasseh was the son of King Hezekiah. So on the one hand, you have David, king of Israel, and his son Solomon turned away from the Lord. Now you have another good king, Hezekiah, but his son Manasseh was one of the most wicked kings that, uh, that Israel or Judah ever had. But at the end of Manasseh's life, in 2 Chronicles 33, 18 and 19, I'm going to read these verses to you. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh, his prayer to his God and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord God of Israel, indeed they are written in the book of the kings of Israel. Also, his prayer and how God received his entreaty and all his sin and trespass and the sites where he built high places and set up wooden images and carved images before he humbled himself, indeed, they are written among the sayings of Hosei. In other words, this wicked man humbled himself before God, and God heard his prayer and turned his heart back to the Lord. That's a wonderful verse when you think about it. I think that what we are going to see in the book of Ecclesiastes is Solomon's heart turning back to the Lord after all of these things. I'm always given a little too much to reading you things in my sermons, but I'm going to do it again tonight because you're such an attentive audience. So let me, let me read to you two descriptions about this very thing I'm talking about. One from Walter Kaiser, a, a theologian of our lifetime. Kaiser said, Therefore, given the Solomonic authorship of the book, listen to this, it is best placed not before his apostasy for the questions and sins of Ecclesiastes did not trouble him then, not during his years of rebellion, for then he had no occasion to use language of spiritual things. Ecclesiastes is best placed after that apostasy when both his recent turmoil and repentance were still fresh in his mind. I want to read you David Jeremiah's description of it, which I think is even more uh, cute. Jeremiah said, The course of Solomon's life, and perhaps something recognizable in yours, in other words, do we see ourselves in these kinds of things, can be traced to three biblical books that were his legacy. In the morning of his life came the Song of Solomon, a prose rhapsody of passionate romance. In the noontime of his life came Proverbs, a book of heavenly rules for earthly living on the main streets of the world. And then he says, finally, in the evening of his life came Ecclesiastes, a regretful uh, retrospective. In the disillusioned autumn, uh, autumn of his life, Solomon revisited the wreckage 
of his wasted years, an attempt also to block others from his own rebellious downhill road to destruction. I thought that was a good description. We have three books with Solomon's name on it then, right? That Song of Solomon uh, is a love story, and, and it's a difficult book to read too. But then we have Proverbs, that wonderful book that we all enjoy and read and quote all the time in the, in the middle of his life when he was that wise king in Jerusalem giving us all of those Proverbs. And then we have Ecclesiastes where he's looking kind of in a pessimistic way toward life. And it seems that what he's doing is saying, I goofed up in the later years of my life. I walked away from the things that I knew, and, and God had warned me, but I didn't pay attention to that. Let me keep you from doing the same thing. There's a lot of what he's saying in this book. So I think that was, that was a good description of where this is. You know, Moses wrote Psalm 90, the only psalm that Moses wrote, and that's the one where he says at the end of Psalm 90, uh, so teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. Take account of your days, even in the end of your life, and apply your hearts to wisdom. Don't let them go in a worldly way. So that said, uh, number one, who is the preacher from verse one? It's Solomon. And it's Solomon probably at the end of his life, looking back on some very difficult and very sinful days where his heart was taken away from God. But you can come back. And you can come back and serve God like Manasseh did and like Solomon did at the end of his life. Secondly, he mentions vanity in verse 2. Vanity of vanities, of course. This word will be mentioned 37 times in these 12 chapters. 37 times vanity is going to be mentioned. And so uh, this word, uh, vanity has a, a lot of shades of meaning to it throughout this book. Uh, look at chapter 1, verse uh, 17 and 18. I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is a grasping for the wind. These are vanity things. For in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Doesn't that just, that sounds like the book of Ecclesiastes. In chapter 6, Vanity is going to mean a sorrowful life without God in it, a, a vain life and an empty life, a life of senselessness in life. We're going to go through all of those things in this book. I have to tell you, I, re I read this little anecdote too. This woman came to her pastor and said, I have to confess a sin to you. He said, oh, yeah, what is that? She said, it's a sin of vanity. She said, I, I stand before the mirror for 30 minutes every morning just looking at myself. She says, I, I think that I'm guilty of the sin of vanity. And he says, oh, no, lady, you're not guilty of the sin of vanity. You're the guilt, guilty of the sin of imagination. <laughs> well, <laughs> life can be deceiving uh, in those ways. You know, we have a verse in, in uh, Romans 8 that says, For the creation of the world was subject to futility. Remember that word futility in the New Testament? 
subject to fertility, because of the sin that came in and destroyed this world and brought the destruction and the death that it brought. It's futility, Paul says. Well, that Greek word futility is the same Greek word in the Greek translation in Ecclesiastes for vanity. All is futility. All is vanity uh, without God in the world. So, in that verse, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. One thing that we ought to remind ourselves of is that all is vanity without God. All is vanity in this world if you try to see it without God. Imagine a world designed and made by a creator, by a maker, you're designed and you're born and you're made in the image of God to do things like he designed it. And imagine then trying to do things by somebody else's design. Imagine trying to, to, to do things and not believe that the one who designed you is the best way to do it. Well, that, that is what this book is about if you do it without God. It will be vanity. All will be vanity. But everything in life with God is good. Solomon climbed to the pinnacle of his life, and then he looked back and he's going to say, it's all vanity without God. I was reading a story of Sir Edmund Hillary, who was the first man to climb Mount Everest, and he got to the top of Mount Everest, and he said, is that all there is to it? Where's the next mountain to climb? That's all he said. Isn't that amazing? Well, Solomon got to the pinnacle of his life, and he said, is it all about riches? Is it all about wealth? Is it all about fame? Is it all about what I've accumulated in my life? Is that what it's about? If that's true, it's all vanity. No, he's going to say, fear God keep his commandments. This is what you're designed for. This is the God who made the world. And then one other thought, just to, by way of introduction uh, tonight, is, the, is verse 3 and that word prophet. What prophet? Not with a PH here, that's with an F. That is prophet uh, in the sense of uh, what good is it? What's the result of it all? And he says, what profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? That expression, under the sun or under heaven, will be used 29 times also in this book. So vanity and what, what purpose is there to life under the sun is going to be used a lot. As a matter of fact, sometimes it's, it's called under heaven. Look, look, for example, in verse 13. Of this, of this chapter. I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. The same type of thing. Chapter 2 and verse 3. I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom, how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was uh, good for the sons of men, uh, or, or uh, for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. And chapter 3 and verse 1, again, under heaven. You'll find it 29 times in the book. Now, an old British writer, at least from a century ago, 
uh, G. Campbell Morgan, uh, who is a great writer, said these words. I thought this was great about this phrase, uh, what profit is there under heaven? He said, this man had been living through all these experiences under the sun, concerned with nothing, he says, above the sun, until there came a moment in which he had seen the whole of his life. And there was something over the sun. It is only as a man takes account of that which is over the sun, as well as that which is under the sun, that things under the sun are seen in their true light. So that expression may be, what is there under the sun? Yes, if you close the top of the box and don't look out to God, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. But if you realize there's something above the sun, and that thing that's above the sun is God himself, and he's the one that controls this world, then I think you're going to be all right. So prophet might mean what's left, what's remaining. It's the opposite. Uh, it ought to be the opposite of vanity. There ought to be something remaining. There ought to be some profit to life. Then he says also about the man, what profit has a man for all his labor? Interesting word here is, you know, I've told you before that the word, the Hebrew word for man is the word Adam. Adam is, means man. And so in that sense, that generic human being, male and female, God created them. In the image of God, God created Adam, created mankind. And you know why we were created? We're created to work. We're created to toil. Adam was a gardener. And he was given a big job to take care of the garden, and, and it was too big for him, so he, God made a helper for him. Uh, so there were two gardeners, and God then made them to have children because they needed a whole family of gardeners. Uh, we were made to work. And so the, Solomon will ask right up front, uh, what profit has mankind from all his labor, which he labors? God made us to work, and we work day in and day out. What, what profit is there to that, to our labor? This word labor is going to be used 23 times in this book, and it's to toil to the point of exhaustion is what this kind of word means, yet with no fulfillment. To work hard, work all of your life to the point of exhaustion, and then say, what was that for? <laughs> what was that worth? You feel like that at the end of your life? You don't have to if you're laboring for God. So, short message, let me bring it to a conclusion this way. You may be young, and at the end of this book, in that chapter 12, he's going to say, remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth. Don't start out life going down some other path. Remember who created you. Remember how he created you. Do that uh, in the early years of your life, and your life won't be vanity and won't be futility. And then he's going to say to those productive years, like Solomon had when he wrote the book of, of Proverbs in chapter 12 and verse 11, uh, the words of the wise are like goads and like nails fastened by the masters of the assembly. 
Uh, that is goads that help people, that push people along, nails that you can hang your hat on, so to speak. When you can do Proverbs, when you're in the middle of your life, the wisest years of your life, remember that these words come from God. And then he'll say, of course, even in the later years of your life, as he will say, before, when, remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not nor the years draw nigh when you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Do you feel like that sometimes in your older life? Uh, things are wearing out. You don't have that, that joy of life that you used to have. Well, then fear God and keep his commandments because this is the whole duty of man. And if you'll start out early in your life fearing God, you'll start out early in your life keeping his commandments, you'll get to the end of your life and number your days and find that it's good to serve God and that's the real purpose in life. So that's our introduction to this book, a short introduction tonight. And then we will come back, by the way, two weeks from tonight, for those of you watching, because uh, we have a business meeting next Sunday night with no Sunday night service. So we'll come back in two weeks, and we're going to start through chapter one. I don't know how long it will take us to go through these 12 chapters, but I think it'll be a great study for our Sunday night. All right, stand with me, if you will, and let's pray together. Father, thank you for these wisdom books that we have in the Bible. Thank you, Father, for psalms that David and others wrote that give us those wonderful songs uh, in our heart. We thank you, Father, for the, for the book of Proverbs that Solomon wrote with all of the wisdom that came to him in the great time of his life when you gave him that wonderful wisdom. And even the Song of Solomon that tells us, Father, about our personal relationships and we thank you for this book that warns us about the end of our life, too, and, and helps us to realize that life is only profitable and good when God is in it. So, Father, bless this study to our hearts and help us, Father, to serve you and follow you in all of our ways. We'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Ken's going to come and lead us in a final song.